Sharon and I had quite a week last week. For part of that week, we had the opportunity to go up to Silver Birch. And it was the last week of, well, 51 years of ministry. And it was a middler junior week, so that means there were third graders all the way up to eighth graders. And there were about 250 kids. But what made it so very, very special is that we had an opportunity to pray specifically for some of those kids. Four of our grandkids were up there at camp. We had an opportunity to uh, encourage the staff who were there. My son and son-in-law were counselors. My daughter was teaching Bible class. And to be able to watch this multitude of kids, yes, enjoy themselves, but in mornings, go to Bible hour and worship a big God. In the evenings, the highlights, especially on Tuesday when we saw tens of kids walk back and want to find a little bit more about their relationship with God. And then the last night, the celebration night, the night when, when we get to bask into God's presence, it was just goosebumps just listening to the kids singing, I will follow Jesus. Puts life in perspective. What's important? Those kids are all going back to school somewhere. Some of them in the homes that don't know Jesus. What a privilege we have to serve God and to spend time with kids. We love families here. We do. And we're preparing right now not only to send out grads, but to train our staff and our leaders to, well, care well for the kids that God's going to give us this year in our ministries. To be able to partner with you parents, because that's hard. And for those that aren't actually involved physically, you get to do what Sharon and I got to do this week. And that's pray. Pray and pray. These are good, exciting times. Well, if you've been around these parts again, most of the time we open up God's Word and we go through a text or a passage These next three weeks are going to be a little unique. We are going to open up God's Word, and we will go through Scripture. But it's going to look just a little bit different. If some of you have, again, been able to look at the book, Surprise Your World. It's a book that really came out of a giant revival that that happened in Australia just recently. And... You know, it caught my attention because realistically, as I've been your pastor and I've walked with you through life, one of the things that keep coming up is how do we reach our world? How how is it that we're able to proclaim the gospel? How is it that, that people who are my neighbors, my coworkers, how do they actually come to faith. How how do we do this, this mission that God has called us to do? 
Well, I'm going to play a clip, and, and I just want you to know right now, the person talking, his name is Michael Frost, he's the author of this book, and he's from Australia, and you guys will love his accent. I'm just going to say it right now, and you probably would say, I wish he were speaking today. He's not. I am. All right? So you got the Chicago kid. No Australian slang at all. But let's listen as he kind of opens up our series. Hi, my name is Mike Frost. I want to speak to you about the importance of fostering missional habits in your life. You're probably used to the fact that churches are promoting all sorts of habitual practices as a way of shaping you to become more like Jesus. Uh, churches would expect that you would attend worship meetings weekly. That's a weekly habit or rhythm. Uh, that habit or rhythm reinforces the importance of gathering together, of worshipping God, of studying the Bible. So, so the regular Sunday meetings are a habitual practice that shapes the kind of people that we are. Well, we have small group meetings or connect groups or Bible studies, whatever your church might call them, and those are ways of weekly or fortnightly developing a rhythm or a habit that says it's important that we share life with each other and that we listen to what the Word of God would say to us. Most churches would expect that their members would habitually tithe or, or contribute financially to the life of the church, and all of these things are good things. In fact, I do all of these things myself. So they're good, and I want to affirm them. But I do want to ask this question. How many of the regularly expected habits that your church fosters, how many of those would you say are missional? That is to say, how many of the regular, habitual lifestyle practices promoted by your church actually propel you outwards into the world to alert others to the reign of God? Now, I'm not being all critical or anything. It just seems to me that for most of us, our church lives foster habits that bind us to each other, which is good, which connect us more deeply to God by hearing his word or through prayer, Bible study and the like, which is good. But what's expected of us that's going to propel us outwards? It seems to me most of our missional activities in our churches, they are kind of extracurricular. You know, you... You're expected to come to church, you're expected to be in a small group, expected to tithe, expected to pray, those kinds of things. And if you like, if you've got a bit of extra time, would you volunteer in this program or be part of that ministry and the like? But Which is good, don't get me wrong, I'm fine with it all, except I have found there's incredible value in developing a set of habits that bind me to God's commitment to propel me into this world. That's what I want us to think about today. I want us to think about what habitual practices would help me do that. My question is, what would it look like if at the very core of our churches, there are a series of habits, required or expected behaviors that helped bind us to each other and did help us connect more deeply with God, but which also propelled us outwards as sent ones into the world in which God's placed us. You see, it's been common for us to think that we need to get our thinking right and then in right thinking we'll be propelled to act correctly as well. The technical way of talking about that is to say that orthodoxy, right thinking, leads to orthopraxy. In other words, we think our way into a new way of living. And maybe you've had experiences like that. You've learned things, it's changed the way you think and then you've acted upon that. And that's great. But you also know lots of people do the reverse. 
We learn how to live in a particular way, and that then shapes our thinking. If you were raised in the church, for example, your parents probably raised you with these habitual practices I was just talking about, going to church, worship, small groups, those kinds of things. The lifestyle then shaped the way you thought about yourself and God and fostered your faith in Christ. Both are right. You can move from orthodoxy to orthopraxy or you can move from orthopraxy into orthodoxy. And it's that second category I want us to think about. Missional habits are basically saying, is it possible for us to foster a lifestyle which promotes our thinking about what the mission of God looks like? Throughout my book, Surprise the World, I unpack each of those five habits and I talk about how living these habits, living them habitually, not only bind us to each other, they propel us outwards into the world. I want to encourage you to consider that these might actually become set patterns, not in a legalistic or, 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 or constraining way, but a way which frees you to connect more deeply with God, more profoundly with each other, and actually to propel you outwards into the world that so desperately needs to know God. Most of us have heard or read the passage in Mark chapter 6, 16, verse 15. Go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. Evangelism is often spoken about in church and in church literature. Yet we cower at the idea of sharing our faith. There are many reasons for this. Sometimes we just don't believe it's that good of news. Sometimes, well, our lives that we're living do not reflect God well, so we feel a little bit like hypocrites. Sometimes we don't feel mature or knowledgeable, able to answer all the hard questions. Sometimes we're afraid of people, losing friends and reputation. Sometimes we want to respect people respect their thoughts, and don't want to push. Sometimes we don't want to be associated with the church, the universal church, you know, those weirdos. And our church, our weirdos. We don't really believe in hell. Or some of us might just say we just aren't Billy Grahams, right? We just don't have that gift. Well, whatever the reason, what I'd like you to do today is take a deep breath, all right? I want you to actually relax. No one is going to ask you to wear a sandwich board, leave our building, and start shouting to repent. What I want to encourage you in this series and actually pump your tires. I want you to feel some of the wings that God has given each one of you. I don't want you to feel pressure. I want you to understand the privilege. And I'm not just trying to play on words. I think, again, there's some misunderstandings. And hopefully we're going to set the ship correctly. I'm asking you to hear and to listen and to respond to God's mission, which he's given you, which he's given us, which he's given me. 
surprising your world will clarify what God is actually asking us to do. And then giving some practical suggestions on how to do it. By now you must know that your pastor is a simple man. All right? He's a person that asks a lot of questions. But the biggest question is this. Does it work? That's all. How's it working? And I think there's some parts of our evangelism mentality that are broken. So this series is just as much about what evangelism is not as what evangelism is. I will make suggestions that if practiced, I believe will turn into natural rhythms. Surprise your world is not a silver bullet. It's about doing well with God and with others. For some of you old-timers, some of you that have been in the church forever, I think this will bring fresh perspective and hope. For those newer to the faith, to the journey, I think you're going to be excited and you're going to be focused, and you're going to be ignited. But before we begin, let's pray. Lord, this week has been really hard for some of the folks sitting right here. They've experienced loss. There's been discouragement. There's times, Father, that marriages have gone through difficult situations. Families seem to be under pressure. But Father, I pray for the church today. As I was reading again in some of the hardest places in all the world to follow you, I, I cringe. I cringe at some places like North Korea and Somalia. Lord, I don't know how those folks do it. We're asking that you would strengthen your church. You would empower your church. God, you've called us right here to Ingleside, Fox Lake, Lake County. God, strengthen your church here. Lord, I've got to be honest. I pray for Willow Creek. In many ways, Lord, we feel so indebted to them. There have been so many people who have come to the kingdom. So many people are walking with you. We know leaders aren't perfect. We know leaders need to walk with you in every way. But, but Father, we pray that you would heal church. Lord, we know that there's other churches in our area that are hurting, that have split, that have factions in them. Lord, we look at our church, and there are people that don't always think the same. But we ask you, Father, to unite your church. 
to encourage your church. That it would be a city on a hilltop like you intended, like we talked about last week. We pray for this message. We pray, God, that you would be honored in all we do and all we say. You gave your life for this church, for the church. And we say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, a healthy Christian is growing in three areas. You'll be growing in your relationship with God. It's an up arrow. You'll be growing in your relationship with each other. It's an in arrow. And you'll be growing in relationship with others outside these walls. It's an out arrow. Up is primary in all of our relationships because it fuels the in and it fuels the out. But if we're frank with ourselves, hardly anyone argues with establishing a relationship with the Almighty. That's really critical in our lives. We get that. And about fellowship inside, small groups, having family, having community, being able to do life together. We call struggle well with life together. Well, hardly anyone argues with that. But somehow the out is hard for every one of us. And, and, I, and I know because of multiple reasons, but oftentimes within one year of a person coming to faith, their friendships will absolutely turn around by this, where you might have 100% or maybe 90% of those not redeemed yet when you come to faith. Within a year, you only have about 90% of those who are of faith. And sometimes there's really good reasons for that. But I know this is that oftentimes we are afraid of the out. Afraid of the out. Well, Jesus lived a perfect up, in, and out life and actually encouraged his disciples to do the same. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He was an agent of reconciliation. He often said in the very beginning of his words and his messages, the kingdom of God is here. I've come to usher in something new. I want you to understand the reign of God. The reign of God is unbelievable. You can submit to our king. He is a good king. He is a powerful king and he is worthy to follow in every area. But that often means repent, because oftentimes our king is us. Surprising your world is about loving God and loving others well. 
We need to start with a better understanding of what loving others well actually looks like. And I'm just going to say we're going to focus on evangelism. Paul assumes that there's a twofold approach to the ministry of evangelism. And let me share with you in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. Now, these are the gifts that Christ gave the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do His work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and the knowledge of God's Son, that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. It's a passage so many of you have read, so many of you understand. But in God's sovereignty, he gives the church gifts. Sometimes they're individuals. Sometimes there's something that he develops in each one of you. But there are certain gifts, and one of these gifts, well, are people, and it's called the evangelist. The evangelist. Now, not everybody is an evangelist. Just like everybody is not a pastor. And not everybody, again, is a prophet. There are certain people in every church, I believe, that God has given these gifts. Well, the thing we have to understand, though, is that even though we're not all evangelists, We all are to do the work of an evangelist. And this is a big deal. If you look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. If you remember, Paul is talking to Timothy here. And Timothy is a pastor. All right? Not to put them up on a pedestal, but to say, hey, even pastors here, listen to this. Because pastors may not have the gift of evangelism this special anointing by the Spirit. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, But you, Timothy, should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord, Timothy. And look at the next. Work at telling others the good news. Some of your translations would be, Do the work of an evangelist. And fully carry out the ministry that God has given you. So there are believers who are evangelists. And there are believers who are to be evangelistic in their orientation. The way I see it is that evangelists are able to boldly proclaim. And there is fruit. As I mentioned this last week at camp. I've never preached or taught and saw that many kids respond. I'm just letting you know. I haven't. (laughs) Some of you can remember the Billy Graham crusades, and there's other types of crusades. And, and you know, you'd say, you know what, that Billy, he talks a little bit funny, but I could say those things. I mean, it's not like, you know, he made things really complicated. How come all those people respond? I never have anybody respond when I talk. What's all that about? And so we kind of feel a little guilty at times. All right? But I know this is that the church 
has given both of these uh, um, encouragements. Evangelists boldly proclaim while believers, and here's the key, give answers. Believers give answers. In Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 2, I'm going to read through verse 6. Listen to the first part of this and the second part, what Paul is actually trying to say. He says, devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Pray for us, Paul says, too, that God will give us, the evangelists, the many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That's why I'm in chains, Paul says, because I'm an evangelist and I boldly proclaimed. I've opened my mouth too much, Paul said. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. And then verse 5, live wisely among those who are not believers. Hmm. And make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so you will have the right response for everyone. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, you must worship the Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak out against you, they will be ashamed when they see what good life you live because you belong to Christ. Two things going on. First of all, there are evangelists who boldly proclaim God's word. And those, well, are other believers who are to pray for evangelists and to be able to live lives where people question you and me. You're going to surprise your world because you're living lives that people say, hmm, that's odd. That's different. Why do you and you can fill in the blank. In other words, the biblical model is for leaders to identify, equip, and mobilize gifted evangelists. Those who then take leadership responsibility for the church's evangelism and inspire all believers to live questionable lives. If all believers are leading the kind of lives that evoke questions from their friends, then opportunities for sharing faith abound and chances for gifted evangelists to proclaim are increased. In brief, our task is to surprise the world. Gifted evangelists telling us to be like them if you're not an evangelist has a debilitating effect. Don't you feel that sometimes? When certain people are gifted in certain ways and they keep letting you know how you fall short. Whoa. But Paul does something very interesting. Again, talking to Titus, a young pastor. 
But he talks about living wisely and how it complements God's word. In Titus chapter 2, and you can put this in your notes, and you can read really verses 1 through 10. I'm not going to do that this morning. But I'd like to summarize that just a little bit. But Paul is talking to Titus, and he's saying, hey, I've got some instructions for some older men, and for some older women, and for some younger men, and for some younger women. And by the way, that includes everybody then, right? We, we all on the same page there? And I don't care, you can fit in whatever category you want here, all right? But all those categories, Paul actually says the same thing. And then he ends up with this slave thing, which again, it bothers so many of us as Christians. But remember that slave, that, and, and probably the best way we can just interpret it, em- employees, all right? In, without going into a lot of detail. But he mentions four times and probably hints another five or six times in these ten verses to live wisely. Live wisely. And in verse 5 and verse 10, I like to read that. Live wisely, then they will not bring shame on the word of God. Then they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. It's how we live. And if we stay connected with God, we listen to God, we listen to His Spirit, you will be salt and you will be light in our world. Imagine ordinary believers infiltrating every area, driving bulldozers, nailing, hammering nails, nailing nails, yes, whatever, in surgery, at an office, making sure accounts balance, selling property, at a cashier's station. Managing a store. All these things. Families doing community well. Sacrificial acts of kindness. Loving your enemies. Forgiving people that should not be forgiven. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool that if we live underneath the king's reign, we act so differently? We do. And yet if you will remind yourself of some of your speech this last week. Maybe you sounded very, 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 very much like your neighbors. And maybe some of your activities this week look very, 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 very much with those who aren't redeemed. And what you talked about and how you justified and what you watched and what you read and And you can go through that list. So that somebody looks at you or looks at me, I don't have any question. Nice guy. Lives in the same house that I do. Drives the same kind of vehicles that I do. Cuts his lawn. Yeah, he's a nice guy. Anytime I ask for help, he's right there. But I do have to ask. You know? And you start thinking through this. 
Well, how does it look today? How do we arouse curiosity among the not yet redeemed? How do we have a godly, intriguing, socially adventurous, joyous presence in the company of others? Well, it's developing a set of natural habits or rhythms daily. A lifestyle that will intrigue others. You see, missional habits are not just strategic. They are consequential. They are. I'd like to literally quote Mike Frost in this book. And he says this. If our only habits as Christians are going to church and attending meetings, they're not going to connect us with unbelievers nor invite their curiosity about our faith. The trick is to develop habits that unite us together as believers to the end while propelling propelling us into the lives of others doing the out. We also need habitual practices that don't deplete our energy or burn us out, but rather re-energize us, replenishing our reserves and connecting us more deeply to Jesus. I have seen these missional habits do just that. Now to me, that sounds powerful. That sounds practical. That's what I want. I want to be energized because I'm in relationship with Jesus. I want to do well with family, community of God, and I want to be able to be salt in my community. I just don't want to be known as a nice guy or a crabby guy or pastor. I don't. So what's happened is that he developed an acronym. And the acronym is BELLS, Five Missional Habits. And we're going to be looking at these and talking about these. And by the way, if you got our email, if you'd like this book absolutely free, you just press on that connection and it will download a PDF for you. And you will, no, a PFD, no, PDF, yes. I was just on the lake. It's PDF, not PFD. All right. Um, But you can download this and it will supplement some of the things that we're talking about. But these are the five missional habits. And as you can see, it's bless, eat, listen, learn, scent. Now, to be quite honest, as I look at these, there are two that are foundational. All of them are important. And that would be listen and learn. All right? Because I think all the others flow out of it. So I tried to come up with an acronym. Liebs. Libs. I couldn't do it. So we're going to still work with bells, okay? Because you'll remember that easier, even though we are going to start with one of the L's. As I said, all are important. But missional habits, and let me just share this with you. We're not asking you to do something mindless like biting your nails. For, I don't know, 55 years of my life, I bit my nails. Now I only bite one nail. I show you nine really beautiful nails. I do not know what the problem is at this, at this stage of my life, okay? But I don't want to get, just keep sticking my hands in my mouth. And I don't want you to be mindless in your mission. 
I think, again, it's just important to you to understand that we can be purposeful in our lives. And there are some habits that we can develop that are good habits, all right? Missional habits are designed to propel us outward beyond ourselves into the lives of others. And to be quite honest, I need help. So because I believe the two L's are foundational, let's take a look at bells out of order. The first one, listening to the Spirit of God habit. Now, what Michael is saying is that out of the week, and I know what some of you are going to say as we kind of go through this. Really? He's going to say, I'll spend at least one period of the week listening to the Spirit's voice. Are you serious, Rick? That hurdle is so low. Can you just bear with me? Because what I'm sensing as I hang out with people is most of us don't do this. Even once during the whole week. All right. Now, if you do this more, I am so excited. All right. Because I think it's profitable. But what we're asking you to do is think about spending one period this week with God alone listening to his voice. Now, listening to the Holy Spirit for many of us is like listening to music while you're at Starbucks. So many other things. And those who multitask, oh, I can listen to music, I can watch TV, I can do my homework, I can, okay, I don't know, maybe you can. But multitasking does not do well when you're listening to God. Listening means you're connected with God, you're walking with God, you're in fellowship with God. If there's any sin in your life, you've confessed your sin. You are connected with God so you can hear his voice. Listening to God, and I'm going to go out on a ledge here, often means silence and solitude, an intentional turning from things and people. Now, I lost some of you right there. Listening is hard. It takes practice and requires discipline. Yet I believe it's going to be missional or foundational in this missional lifestyle. I'd like to talk to you just for a few minutes about silence and solitude. Many of you know I have the privilege during January to go up north to Nicolay Bible Institute and to teach. And the, and the class that I teach is really developing your relationship with God or spiritual disciplines or how to connect with God or how to grow in your relationship with God. Those are all really lots of great titles, but, but that's what I teach. And so I have a group of 15 to 30 students, no matter how many there are up there, and we just go, and how do we connect with God better? One of the things... I am telling you, these are millennials, or maybe even earlier now. So they're all 17 to 22-year-olds for the most part. And we get to this whole thing called silence and solitude, and they go berserk. They absolutely flip out. And so what I do is I start them off with 30 minutes. And then I add to two hours. And then I go to four hours, which is something that happens after I leave. But the reason that we just go bonkers about this is we are just not used to, number one, being alone, and number two, having it quiet. 
That takes work. You know, Psalm 37, 7, the psalmist writes this, be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. Oh yeah, we're all up in that patient thing, aren't we? Come on, let's get this message over. All right, Psalm 46, 10, be still and know that I'm God. Isn't that odd that those are the psalmist kind of saying, how do you know God? How do you hear from God? Whoa, you have to be still. Ecclesiastes 3, 7. Many of you uh, have heard the folk song. To everything there's a time and there's a season. Well, one of the things the wise man Solomon said, there is a time to be quiet. I know that's what you tell your kids, you know, but, but for us. In Mark chapter 1, verse 35, before daybreak, the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place. He purposely went out to a place where there were no people. Early. Oh, Rick, don't do that. I'm just saying. Matthew 14, 13 and 21. As soon as Jesus heard the news about John the Baptist, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. After sending them home afterwards, there was little things that happened in those 10 verses. Then he went up to the hills by himself. Night fell while he was there alone. Silence in solitude is one of those spiritual disciplines. Disciplines don't make you look good to God. Disciplines open the door for you to be able to experience God. You know, we're really good at messing up really good things. The Pharisees did it. They loved to pray. They're really good prayers. They made an art of it. But instead of actually talking to God, what they did is perform. We all have the same bent as Pharisees. No matter what spiritual discipline, prayer, silence and solitude, or whatever, we have a tendency to screw it up. And all I'm saying is this. There are extremes. We either overemphasize God's role or overemphasize our role. In other words, what happens with any spiritual discipline is that we either just go in this time of silence and solitude, sit there like a monk waiting for God just to shout or whisper. It's so funny, up at camp for that first half hour, 30 minutes that I have kids do that, they come back, and you know what the basic um, response is? Didn't hear from God. This must not be working. I get it. I do. Now when they do it two hours a little bit later in the week, there's a little different response as they're starting to grow and starting to do some things. But, but again, I think this is like a dance. I'm not a dancer, but I know this. In a dance, some people give and some people take, right? Some people lead and some people follow. And if you don't do that, the dance partners look really funny, don't they? I mean, like, They fall, they step on feet, they do things like that, right? This is how it is with spiritual disciplines. It's God and it's you. And disciplines have been used for 
centuries. I'm going to skip that next slide, and I'm going to go right to silence and solitude is not the only way to hear God, but it is critical in the journey. It is. I feel it's sometimes helpful in discerning God's voice, in hearing the promptings during the busyness of our time, to be able to just be quiet. If you're serious about silence and solitude, here are some suggestions, and I put them up on the board for you. And they may look a little bit like you don't want to do this, but if you want to engage in this, number one, I'd be glad to encourage you and help you and walk you through some of this. But here's what I found helpful. First of all, always have your Bible, a pen, and paper. You know the reason why? Every time I go and want to be by myself or it's quiet and I want to listen to God, I remember I have to cut the grass. So on my piece of paper, I go, cut grass. And then I remember, oh, wait a minute, I need to give Bill a call. So I write, call Bill. And then I'm, I'm really quiet. And then, oh, Sharon said, pick up milk. Okay, pick up milk. And after about the first 15 minutes, I've got this long laundry list. And then I start to hear God. Not to say Sharon is not like the voice of God at times. Okay? But... I will say this, is that I get distracted really easy, and I need to just write things down. I also need the Bible there, because God uses the Bible so much more than anything else for me to be able to talk to me. I need to set a designated time, and if you've never done this, I would not say I'm going to spend 24 hours in silence and solitude. If you could do 24 minutes the first time, that would be awesome. It would. Thirdly, I would eliminate distractions. That means phones, iPads, computers, anything. Say, well, Rick, I have a really important call to come. I don't care. I don't care. You will never hear from God if your phone is next to you. I just, I'm pretty convinced of it. Then be willing to hear God. Invite God in. Be patient. He doesn't often use a megaphone right away. He, he takes time. He really does. And then I would say act on God's prompting. You know, last week, I, I got to tell you, or two weeks ago, it was so weird. I was in a meeting with Willie, and we were in my office. And I'm not sure where the ladies were at that time. I'm not even sure what day it was at that time. But, but all of a sudden, this foreign man actually walked in. And the reason I know it's foreign because he talked a little funny, all right? And he said, you know what? The Lord told me, or not Rick, but he told me that I needed to stop by. And so this morning, I didn't listen to the Lord, and I just rode by. But on my way home, the Lord said, I need to stop and give you a message. So Willie and I are looking at this guy going, okay, do-do-do-do-do-do, you know, like, what are you, what are you doing? But all of a sudden it changed. And he looked at me and he said, I want you to know it is finished. And I go, is that all you got? Yeah, that's all I got. God said to stop in here, tell you guys it is 
finished. Okay. I talked to him a little bit. He was a man from Haiti. He was a man who was deeply spiritual. He was a man that listened to God. I, I sense that. I have no idea what that message means right now, and neither does Willie. But we're, we're leaving it there. We're leaving it there. Because I think actually God used this man to talk to us, and, I, and I'm not actually discerning what that means at this moment. I, I'm just not. But it's there. It is so cool. God uses, sometimes people come to mind, and the truth is, oh, I need to call him. Or I don't even know why I need to call you, but I'll write that down on my sheet. And God brings people to mind. He brings personal conviction, personal encouragement. Sometimes there's praise. Sometimes I forget. I'm so busy. And God says, would you look at that tree and how beautiful that water lily is? Really? I want you to look at the water lily. Okay. The water lily is amazing. That's what I want you to see. Practice does help us hear God better. And it's not only the time that's... Silence and, tol- silence and solitude is not the only time you hear from God. But you know what I found? It's the best time to hear from God. And if you've never done that, I'm encouraging you. Sometime this week, spend some time just you and God. Because practice not only helps us hear better, but then during the hectic times of our life, we hear God differently. You're in tune with God differently. How cool is that? Being able to live a life, being able to listen to God's promptings in the midst of all the busyness. Yeah. Well, you know what? My question to you is this, as we close our time. How's it going for you? How's the outgoing for you? Are we living lives that are questionable? Is God changing us from the inside out and how we look at people, how we spend our money, how we spend our time? What is important? Maybe if you're living your life exactly the same way as everyone else on this planet, maybe your up needs to change a little bit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace you give to each one of us. We thank you for the gifts that you've given this church. We thank you, Father, for the ministries that we are able to engage in. But Lord, more than that, we even thank you today that we can be in our world, that we can be salt and light, that there are multitudes of people that don't know you and are drifting and trying to find purpose. Lord, would we not put a show on, but would we just live underneath your reign Would we listen to you? Would the way we give and the way we serve and the way we treat other people be so unbelievably different that people start asking us why? Would our marriages shout in the neighborhood, I I want a marriage like that. 
would families who literally sit down for a meal together, God, would you grow that so that our families look different? Would we be different carpenters and masons? Would we be different nurses and doctors? Would we be different because we love you? In Jesus' name, amen.